Welcome to Commentaries on the Book of the Prophet Jeremiah and the Lamentations by John Calvin, Volume 1. We are continuing to read at page 120 for this reading, which is Lecture 8. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival's Books, many free resources as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, so also he says to everyone, give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Commentaries on the Book of the Prophet Jeremiah and the Lamentations by John Calvin, Volume 1, which we hope you find to be a great blessing, and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the, unto the Father but by him. John 14.6 Lecture 8 Verse 25 Withhold thy foot from, thy, from being unshod, and thy throat from thirst. But thou saidst, There is no hope, no, for I have loved strangers, and after them will I go. The words of the prophet, as they are concise, may appear at the first view obscure, but his meaning is simply this that the insane people could by no means be reformed, however much God might try to check that excess, excess by which they were led away after idols and superstitions. In the first clause, God relates how he dealt with the people. All the addresses of the prophets had, had this as their, as their object. I'm sorry, all the addresses of the prophets had this as their object. As of their object, to make the people to rest contented under the protection of God. But he employs other words here. Keep thy foot, he says, from unshodding, and thy throat from thirst. For whenever there was any danger, they ran, now to Egypt, then to Assyria, as we've already seen. Hence, God complains of their madness, because they obeyed not his wise and salutary counsel, counsels. Had God bidden them to run here and there, either to the east or to the west, they might have raised an objection and say that the journey would be irksome to them, but he only commanded them to remain still and quiet. How great, then, was their madness that they would not with quietness wait for the help of God, but weary themselves, and that was no benefit. Isaiah says nearly the same thing, but in other words. For he expostulated with them, because they underwent every kind of weariness, when they might have been protected by God, and be in no way wearied. We now then comprehend the design of the prophet. For God first shows that the people had been admonished, and that in time, but that they were so taken up with their own perverse counsels that they could not endure the words of the prophets. It was the highest ingratitude in them that they refused to remain quiet at home, but preferred to undergo great and severe labors without any advantage, according to what is said by Isaiah in another place. This is your rest, but ye would not. Isaiah thirty fifteen. There is no one who desires not rest and peace, 
Nay, all confess that it is the chief good, which all naturally seek. The prophet says now that it was rejected by the people of Israel. It hence follows that they were wholly insane, for they had lost the desire which is by nature implanted in all men. The prophet then does not here simply teach, but reminds the Jews of what they had done, of what they had heard before from Isaiah, and also from Micah, and from all the other prophets. For God had often exhorted them to remain quiet, and the prophet now upbraids them with ingratitude because they gave to their own mad folly and rejected the singular benefit offered them by God. Let us then know that the prophet states here what others before him had taught. Keep back, he says, thy foot from unshotting. Some render the last word from nakedness because they wore out their shoes by long journeys. But this, I think, must be understood by what was uncommon, by what was commonly done, for they were wont to make journeys unshod. Keep then thy foot from being unshod, and thy throat from thirst. Footnote. That the word means to be barefooted or without shoes is clear from Isaiah 22-4, and also from Second Samuel uh, 15-30. And it is nowhere else found except here. It being here a noun, it signifies literally barefootedness. They are here exhorted not to travel for aid to foreign lands so as to wear out their shoes and thus become barefooted. This was said in contempt in order to pour ridicule on their folly in seeking foreign aid. Editor. End footnote. We know that thirst is very grievous to men. Hence the prophet here reproves the madness of the people, that they were so seized with the ardor of an impious passion that they willfully exposed themselves to thirst even by long journeys. As then God required nothing from the people but to ask his counsel, their sin was doubled by their unwillingness to obey his salutary direction. A plausible excuse, as I have already said, might have been alleged had God dealt in a hard and severe manner with the people, but as he was ready kindly and graciously to preserve them in a complete state of quietness, no kind of excuse remained for them. It then follows, Thou hast said, There is not a hope, no. The prophet shows here, as to the people, how perverse they were, for they obstinately rejected the kind and friendly admonitions which had been given them. They say first, There is not a hope, or it is all over, for ayash in nifal means to despair or to be out of hope. It may be rendered, It is weariness, and this would not be unsuitable if taken in this sense. I have thought, I have thoughtlessly tormented myself more than enough so that weariness itself induces me to rest. No. The prophet speaks concisely in order to express more strikingly the refractory conduct of the people. By saying, there is not a hope, it is the same as though he had said that they spurned all exhortations, and then he adds no. There is no verb put here, but an elliptical expression, as I have said, is more forcible to set forth the ferocity of the people. Footnote. It has been disputed whether the negative no refers to the advice given at the beginning of the verse or to the immediately preceding word. The latter is the most natural. The word, non-English word, is a participle, as in Job uh, 6.26. The verse may be thus rendered. Verse 25. 
Keep thy foot from being bare, and thy throat from thirst. But thou hast said, Hopeless, no, for I have loved strangers, and after them will I go. The first part implies that they were pursuing a useless course. The insolent answer was, Is it hopeless? By no means. The Septuagint omit the negative and have only non-English word, which means, I will act manfully. And this version has been followed by the Syriac and Arabic. The Vulgate has, Desperavi naquaquam faciam. I have despaired, I will by no means do so. The most literal rendering is given above and affords the best and the most suitable meaning. To confess that it was a hopeless thing to attempt to reform them is not so appropriate as to deny it to be hopeless to have recourse to foreign alliances, which seems to be the import of the passage. This is the view which Gattaker seemed most inclined to take, and he mentions this rendering, Should I despair? No. To the same purpose is the version of June and Trem. But Grotius, Henry, and Adam Clark agree with the explanation of Calvin. Editor. End footnote. Isaiah expostulated with them in another way and blamed them because they did not say, There is not a hope. Thus, Isaiah and Jeremiah seem to be inconsistent, for our prophet here reproves the people for saying, There is not a hope, and Isaiah for not having said so. But when the Jews expressly answered, according to this passage, There is not a hope, they meant that the prophets spent their labor in vain, as they were determined to follow their own course to the last. Hence, by this expression, there is not a hope, is set forth the extreme perverseness of the people, and he shows that no hope of repentance remained, since they said openly and without any evasion that it was all over. But Isaiah reproved the people for not saying that there was not a hope, because they did not acknowledge after long experience that they were proved guilty of folly for after having, after having often run to Egypt and then to Assyria, and the Lord having really taught them how ill-advised they had been, they ought to have learned from their very disappointments that the Lord had frustrated their expectations in order to lead them to repentance. Justly, then, does Isaiah say that the people were extremely besotted because they ever went in on, went on in their blind obstinacy and never perceived that God did set many obstacles in their way in order to compel them to go back and to cast aside all their vain hopes by which they deceived themselves. We hence see that there is a complete agreement between the two prophets, though their mode of speaking is different. Jeremiah then introduces the people here as saying expressly, and thus avowing their own perverseness, there is not a hope, as though they had said, ye prophets do not cease to stun our ears, but vain and useless is your labor. For we have once for all made up our minds, and we can never be brought to revoke our resolution. But what does Isaiah say? He reproves the madness of the people, that having been so often deceived by the Egyptians, as well as by the Assyrians, they did not understand that they ought to be, by such trials and experiments, to have been brought back to the right way, but continued obstinately to follow their own wicked counsels. As to the passage before, we perceive the Jews to rest quiet and dependent. I'm sorry, we perceive what the prophet means, that God had kindly exhorted the Jews to rest quiet and dependent on his aid, but that they were not only stiff-necked, but also insolently rejected the kindness offered to them. It then follows, 
for I have loved strangers, and after them will I go. Here he exaggerates the sin of the people, for they gave themselves up to strangers, and he retains the similitude which we have already observed. For as God had taken the people under his own protection, so the obligation was mutual. Both parties were connected as by a sacred bond, as the case is between a husband and his wife. As he pledges his faith to her, so she, by the law of marriage, is bound to him. Jeremiah here retains this similitude and says that the people were like the basest trumpet, strumpet, for they, will, they would not hear the voice of their husband, though he was willing and anxious to be reconciled to them. Now, a wife must be wholly irreclaimable when she spurns her own husband, who is ready to receive her into favor and to forgive her all the wickedness she may have done. The prophet then shows that there was in the people so great and so hopeless an impiety that they closed their ears against God, who kindly exhorted them to repent. And worse still, they shamelessly boasted that they were resolved to worship idols and their own fictions and to reject the only true God. It follows, verse 26, As the thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings, their princes, and their priests, and their prophets. Some render the words in the future sense, So ashamed shall be the house of Israel. And they think that the prophet is speaking here of the punishment which was impending over the people. But I explain the words as they are, that the impiety of the people was so gross that there was no need formally to prove it as it was so very palpable. Hence, the prophet compares the Jews to open thieves, as though he had said that hypocrites amongst, among the people gained nothing by their evasions and subterfuges, for their impiety was quite public. They were like a thief when caught, who cannot deny nor hide his crime. Hence, he says that they were caught, as they say, in the very act. That is, their flagitious deeds were so conspicuous that whatever ob objections they may rise, they could not clear themselves that their baseness was known to all. We now then perceive what the prophet means. We have before seen that the people had recourse to many excuses, but Jeremiah shows here that they attained nothing for all their evasions, except that they were more fully discovered that they more fully discovered their own effrontery, for the dishonesty was evident to all. It was so manifest that they could never cover it by any cloaks and pretenses. Footnote. The verb rendered is ashamed is in the past tense in hufal and means made ashamed or confounded as rendered by the Targum and the Vulgate. The Septuagint have converted it into the future sense and so have the Syriac and the Arabic which have been followed by most modern versions and by commentators. If we rightly view the whole passage we shall see reason to take this verb as we find it in the past tense. The verse is an answer, as it were, to what it contained in the latter part of the previous verse, by a reference to what had already taken place as to the people of Judah, and the thirtieth verse countenances the past tense. This and the following verse may be thus rendered, verse 26, As a thief is ashamed when he is found out, so made ashamed have been the house of Israel, they, their kings, their princes, their priests, and their prophets. Verse 27 who have said to the wood, My father art thou, 
and to the stone thou hast begotten me. Though they have turned to me the back and not the face, yet in the time of their calamity they say, Arise and save us. The participles in Hebrew are regulated as to their tense by the verbs in the passage. Hence, non-English word in verse 27 is to be in the same tense with the previous verb. The future in the last line is to be in the present as it expresses what was commonly done. Then what was usually said to them is mentioned in the following verse. Verse 27. Saying to a stock, Thou art my father, and to a stone, Thou hast... I'm sorry. Uh, Blaney has kept the past tense as to the last line, and also as to the beginning of verse 26. Editor. End footnote. Nor does he speak only of the common people, but he condemns kings, princes, priests, and prophets, as though he had said that they were become so corrupt from the least to the greatest, that having, east, having cast off all shame, they openly showed a manifest and gross contempt for God by following their own inventions and superstitions. And yet the Jews no doubt attempted by many excuses to defend themselves, but God here shakes off all those fallacious pretexts by which they thought to cover their flagitious deeds and says that they were notwithstanding manifestly thieves. The prophet had said before that the Jews made a different declaration, and now he condemns their effrontery, but there is no inconsistency as to the meaning. The Jews denied that they were apostates and guilty of perfidy, or that they had forsaken the worship of God. They denied this in words, but the prophet, in now re- proclaiming their shamelessness, does not refer to words, for they, had ar- for they had ready at hand their false pretensions, as it has already been stated. But the prophet now takes the fact itself as granted, and says that they wickedly and perversely resisted God, so that their wickedness and obstinacy were past all remedy. It now follows verse 27. Saying to a stock, Thou art my father, and to a stone. Thou hast brought me forth, for they have turned their back unto me, and not their face. But in the time of their trouble they will, arise, they will say, Arise and save us. But where are, the gods, where are thy gods that thou hast made thee? Let them arise, if they can save thee in the time of thy trouble. For according to the number of thy cities are thy gods, O Judah. The prophet here confirms what he had said before, of the verse of the perverse wickedness of the people, he shows that he had not said without reason that their sins were extremely gross and could not be excused by any evasions, for they say he for they say he adds to the woods, thou art my father, and to the stone thou hast begotten me with these words, the prophet shows that idolatry was so rampant among the people that they openly ascribed to their statues made of wood or stone the honor due to the only true God. But the prophet points out here what is especially to be detested in idolatry, and that is the transferring of the honor due to God to statues, not only as to the external act by bending the knee before them, but by seeking salvation from them. And this is what we ought particularly to notice. For the papists at this day, though they prostrate themselves before their pictures and statues, 
do not yet acknowledge themselves guilty of idolatry when such a charge is brought against them. They say that they worship the statues, not with the honor due to God, but with such honor as a servant renders to his master. Footnote. The words employed by Calvin are the technical terms latria and dulia, the fictions of the papists. The first means specifically worship, and the second, service, obedience. The verb non-English word in the New Testament is never used in the sense of worshiping or adoring, but of serving and obeying. But to bow to images or to kiss them is an act of adoration and not of service. Editor. End footnote. They think that they thus exculpate themselves. But were we to grant what they allege, they yet cannot deny but that they address prayers and supplications to statues. As then they ask the very statues to save them, whatever sophistry they may adopt, it is altogether nugatory. For the prophets condemned condemn not merely the outward gesture, the bowing down, and other ceremonious acts, as they are called, when they, con- when they condemned idolaters. What then? They condemned them because they said to statues, Thou art my father. That is, because they ascribed the power which belongs only to God to statues made of wood or stone. It is indeed certain that the Jews never sunk into so great a depth of sottishness as expressly to profess that gods of wood and stone were equal to the true God, and they never said any such thing. Yet the prophet did not calumniate them, calumniate them in ascribing what is here said to them. But as it is clearly evident from other places, the prophet regarded their thoughts rather than their words. For the Jews professed the same thing as the papists of the present day when they prostrated themselves before their statues. They said that they worshipped the only true God and sought salvation from him, and yet they thought that the power of God was inherent in the statues themselves. Hence they said, Thou art my father, thou hast begotten me. The case is the same with the papists of the present day. When anyone prostrates himself before the statue of Catherine or of Christopher, he says, Our Father. When he justifies himself in doing this, he says that it is done in honor to the one true God. And yet thou runnest blindly now to one statue and then to another and mutterest, Our Father. There is not the least doubt but that the superstition which now prevails under the papacy is even more gross than that which prevailed amongst the Jews. But to say nothing of the papists, because they mutter, Our Father, before the statues, there is no doubt but that when they present their prayers to statues, they consider God's power to be in them. We must now then bear in mind that the Jews were not only condemned because they burned incense, burnt incense and offered sacrifices to idols, but because they transferred the glory of God to their statues when they asked salvation from them. And as this was not done in express words, for the prophet here brings to light their impious thoughts, for they did not raise up their minds and thoughts to God, but turned them to statues. It afterwards follows, they have turned turned to me the neck and not the face. Footnote. The neck here means evidently the hinder part, for it is in contrast with face and the word generally means the hinder part. Hence, it is properly rendered here back in our vision and by Blaney 
and so by the Targum and the early versions, except the Syriac, which retains the hinder part of the neck. We have no single word except it be nape, which denotes the back part of the neck. There is one in Welsh, guigal, and so in Latin, cervix, and in Greek. But the Septuagint have adopted here backs, editor, and footnote. In these words, God again confirms what he had before said, that the apostasy or defection of the people was more manifest than what could be disguised by any colorings. He then adds, Yet, in the time of their affliction, they will say, Arise and save us. God here complains that the Jews most strangely abused his kindness, for they came to him when any grievous calamity constrained them. What have, I to do, what have I to do with you, he says? Ye are wholly devoted to your idols. Ye call them your fathers, and ascribe to them the glory of your salvation when things go on peaceably with you. But when your idols in time of distress give you no aid, then ye return to me and say, Arise and save us. But since idols are your fathers, and you expect salvation from them, I shall have nothing to do with you. Be contented with your idols, and trouble me no more for I have been forsaken by you. And hence he adds, Where are your gods? Here God laughs to scorn the false confidence by which the Jews deceived themselves. Where are your gods, which ye have made for yourselves? Let them arise. Let us see whether they will help you in the time of your distress. We now understand what the prophet means. For he shows that the people acted in a most strange manner, for they worshipped idols when they were in safety, and afterwards would have, God, would have God to be bound to them. And yet they denied the true God when they fell away in, unto idols. He then shows that they could expect no aid from God, for they robbed him of his own power when they devised idols for themselves. But we must ever remember what he said, that false gods were counted as fathers and authors of salvation by the people. The same thing is, no doubt, done at this day under the papacy, for the papists have their patrons, and when they find that their foolish superstitions can do nothing for them, they would have God to help them. And yet they leave nothing to him. After having taken away all his glory and divided it as a spoil among dead saints, they would then have God to be their helper. But we see what God's answer is to them, is, where are your gods? Now this truth is of use to us. And we hence learn that we are not to wait until we are really and in the last state of despair compelled to acknowledge that our labors have been useless while we hoped and prayed for help from idols, but that we ought to come directly to God himself for aid in our distress. God proceeds further with the sarcasm or the derision which he has employed. Where are thy gods? Let them now arise that they may help thee. That is, let them try their utmost whether they can aid thee. According to the number of thy cities have been thy gods, O Judah. As the people were not satisfied with one god, every city chose its patron for itself. Since then, innumerable, innumerable gods are invoked by you. How comes it that they do not help you? We hence see that the unbelief of the people is here sharply reproved, for they did not acquiesce in God alone, but sought to procure for themselves gods without number, there were many cities in the tribe of Judah, and there were as many patrons. 
the one true God, would have been fully sufficient for them and would have brought them complete deliverance whenever needed. But the one true God they despised, and every city devised a God for itself. Since ye trust, he says, in such a multitude, let them now arise, that they may succor you. For I, who am one, am despised by you. We now understand that the prophet means also in this part. It afterwards follows, verse 29. Wherefore will ye plead with me? Ye all have transgressed against me, saith the Lord. Jeremiah concludes here his previous subject. He says that the Jews gained nothing by alleging against God that they were innocent, by thinking that they could be that they could by mere words escape his judgment, and not only by doing so, but also by hurrying on to such a degree of presumption as to challenge God himself and to seek to prove him guilty. But God answers them in one word and says that they were perfidious. The meaning then is perfidious. The meaning then is that the Jews ill consulted their own interest in hardening themselves in their obduracy. For God would hold them fully convicted of impiety, so that they in vain alleged this or that as an excuse. Footnote. The verb rendered plead in our version is followed by non-English word against or in opposition to. There are two other instances. Um, our version in Job is why dost thou strive against him? The most suitable rendering of this passage is why should ye contend, contend against or with me? Then follows a fact sufficient to put an end to all contention. All of you have rebelled against me, saith Jehovah. The primary idea of non-English word is to go, to pass, to march on. See Isaiah 27.4. Its meaning depends on the preposition which follows it. Followed by non-English word over, it means to transgress, it being a going or passing over the, the limit set by the law by non-English word, to go from, to revolt, to apostatize, 2 Kings 8.22, and by the non-English word, to go against, to rebel, as in this passage. Hence the noun has attained various meanings, transgression, apostasy, and rebellion. Its precise meaning in any case is to be determined by the context. Gattaker and Blaney render the verb here the same. All of you have rebelled against me, saith Jehovah. The early versions vary. The Septuagint have non-English word, ye have acted impiously. The Syriac, ye have denied me. The Arabic, ye have sinned against me. And the Vulgate, ye have forsaken thee, me. The general idea is the same, but the specific one is that of rebelling against God. Editor. End footnote. Now this passage deserves a special notice, for we know how prone we are by nature to hypocrisy, and when God summons us to his tribunal, hardly one in a hundred will acknowledge his guilt and humbly pray for forgiveness. But the greater part complains, nay, almost all murmur against God, and still more they gather boldness and proudly dare to challenge and defy God. Since then hypocrisy thus prevails in us, and it's deeply fixed in the hearts of almost all, 
and since hypocrisy generates insolence and pride against God, let us remember what the prophet says here, that all who, who dispute against God gain nothing by their excuses because he will at length detect their de- defection and perfidy. It then follows, verse 30, In vain have I smitten your children. They received no correction. Your own sword hath devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. Some expound the beginning of this verse as though the meaning were that God chastised the Jews on account of their folly because they habituated themselves to falsehoods. But the latter clause does not correspond. There is therefore no doubt but that God here expostulates with the Jews because he had tried to bring them to the right way and found them wholly irreclaimable. A similar expostulation is found in Isaiah. In vain, he says, have I chastised you, for from the sole of the foot to the crown of the head there is no soundness. Isaiah 1.6 There God shows that he had tried every remedy, but that the Jews, being wholly refractory in their spirit, were wholly incurable. Jeremiah speaks now on the same subject, and God thus exaggerates the wickedness of the people, for he testifies that he had tried whether they would be taught no not only by words, but also by scourges and chastisements, but that his labor in both instances had been in vain. But he spoke before of teaching, Keep thy foot from being unshod, and thy throat from thirst. The prophets then had exhorted the Jews by God's command to rest quietly. This teaching had been useless and unfruitful. God now adds that he had tried in another way to bring them to a right mind. But this effort had also been useless and in vain. In vain have I chastised ye, you, for ye have not received correction. But he speaks of children in order to show that the whole people were unteachable. For though lusts boil more in youth, yet their obduracy is not so great as in the old, as he who has through his whole life hardened himself in the contempt of God can hardly be ever healed and be amended by correction. For old age is of itself morose and difficult to be pleased. And the old also think that wrong is in a manner done to them when they are reproved. But when the insolence and obduracy of the young are so great that they reject all correction, it is more strange and monstrous. The prophet then shows that there was nothing sound or right in that people since their very children refused correction. Footnote. Blaney renders the word instruction. The Septuagint have discipline. The Syriac, Vulgate, and the Targum are the same, but the Arabic Arabic has instruction. The strict meaning of the word is restraint, check, discipline, correction. Not to receive restraint or correction is is not to be thereby improved or reformed, but to proceed in the same course. See chapter 5, 3. The word has also a secondary meaning, instruction, as the effect of correction. But here it means correction. We now perceive his object, that as God had sent his prophets, and as their labor availed nothing, he now shows that not only the ears of the people have been deaf to wholesome teaching, but that they were hard-necked and untamable, for he had tried to correct them by scourges, but effected nothing. It follows, 
their sword has devoured the prophets. But I cannot finish now. Prayer Grant, Almighty God, that since Thou, in Thy paternal kindness, daily invited us to Thyself, we may not harden ourselves against Thy holy and salutary admonitions. And whenever Thou chastise us with scourges, may we not become obdurate against Thee, but learn humbly to submit to Thy word and receive Thy chastisement, and so profit by both, that we may not be exposed to the extreme judgment which Thou denouncest on the obstinate, but may we, on the contrary, open a way for Thy paternal goodness, so that Thou mayest kindly deal with us, until Thou receivest us into that blessed rest which has been prepared for us in heaven, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by mail at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you'll be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you've supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web as well as at times to our our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full contents of this message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And Second Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.